Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this 5 by 15 event with Merlin Sheldrake and Guy Vince. It's World Soil Day today, a day to focus our attention on the importance of healthy soil and the sustainable management of the Earth's soil resources. It's apt then that for the next hour or so, we'll be burrowing down into the spectacular world of fungi, looking at how they make our worlds, change our minds and shape our futures. The biologist Merlin Sheldrake's book, Entangled Life, was a smash hit bestseller when it was first published in 2020, and it has won numerous awards, including the Royal Society Science Book Prize and the Wainwright Prize. It's also been translated into more than 20 languages since publication. Entangled Life has recently been republished in a brand new illustrated edition with over 100 spectacular full colour images. We'll be seeing a few of them this evening, and they really are something, showcasing this wondrous life form as we've never seen it before. A quick reminder that you can order copies of Entangled Life this evening from our independent bookseller, Newham Bookshop. It's a perfect Christmas present, and details about that are being posted in the chat now. We're so pleased that Merlin will be in conversation this evening with science writer and broadcaster Gaia Vince. Gaia is the author of numerous award-winning books, including Adventures in the Anthropocene, which won the Royal Society Science Book Prize in 2015, making her the first woman to do so. Gaia's latest book, Nomad Century, is an urgent investigation into climate migration, and we were very lucky to hear all about that at 5 by 15 back in the summer. Gaia and Merlin's conversation will run for around an hour this evening, and there will be time to answer your audience questions too. So please do post these in the Q&A box at any time during the event, and we'll get to as many as possible. Without any further ado, a warm welcome to Gaia and Merlin. Hello, hello, hello. Um, sorry, I just struggled to um, to put my uh, put my uh, uh, sound and video on. Then you'd think after all this time of practice that we've had during the pandemic, it'd be very easy. But I've obviously forgotten. Um, it's a huge, huge uh, privilege today to be talking to Merlin, and I have here um, a copy of his fabulous book. Um, I hope that's not back to front. If it is. It looks much better when it's the right way round, um, and um, I'll be I'll be talking to Merlin, and I have lots of questions I want to ask him. But do you know, as Jack said, do do send in your own questions as well. So hello, hello Merlin. It's a big privilege to be talking to you today. I love your books. Oh hi, guy. It's great to chat. I love your shirt. I just noticed. I, yes. Oh yes. So I am in homage to the subject. I am wearing. I'm wearing mushrooms, I'm wearing fungi, and that's a great introduction, right? Because fungi, it's the subject, the entangled life is is um, all about fungi. And, and we should start, I guess, by by identifying what they are. So mush this is just the, the fruiting body that we all, we all recognize. But you know, what are fungi? They're not plants, right? They're not algae, they don't photosynthesize. They're a bit more like animals, but obviously they're not animals. What are fungi, Merlin? Mm -hmm. So f fungi, their own kingdom of life. So plants are a kingdom of life. Animals are kingdom of life. Bacteria are a kingdom of life. Um, so, so this is a really broad category. There's lots of ways to be a fungus. And, um, and so they are, um, as you say, they don't photosynthesize like plants. Um, they, like animals, they have to find food in the world, ready-made and digest and eat that. Um, but unlike animals, uh, which tend to move around with twitchy muscular bodies, um, uh, fungi don't, they, they grow around. So they're a bit more like plants in that respect. Um, 
And so uh, we can often confuse them for plants. And indeed, they were thought of uh, as plants until the late 1960s when they won their independence and became a kingdom um, a kingdom of life. So um, when we think of fungi, we normally think of mushrooms, um, as, as your shirt um, so wonderfully displays. Um, mushrooms are, are, are astonishing forms. They vary a lot. Uh, and they're the, the places where fungi produce spores, which is how they uh, reproduce. Um, but most fungi live most of their lives not as mushrooms, but as branching, fusing networks of tubular cells called mycelial networks. And so a lot of what we'll talk about today, I think, will um, concern their mycelial form um, rather than their mushroom form, although we will definitely talk about mushrooms as well. Yeah, so, I mean, we have sort of culturally, particularly since the Enlightenment in the West, we, we've become quite... Um, we've compartmentalized a lot of things that a lot of science is about is about objects we're breaking things down into more and more objects and we think of ourselves as units and the individual parts of ourselves as units and really what you're doing with your work um entangled life the, the word entangled is really throwing that away and saying you know we're part of a system we we are all completely networked and the 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 way that the mushrooms and the way that other fungi um uh, operate and grow is through this network and that is that is really um it's conceptually something difficult to take on and i think you do it you you describe it really beautifully um in your book and I think in order to get our heads round really, you know, what we're talking about, perhaps you could explain what happens if you were to if you were to pick up a mushroom and and um and delineate the the bit of soil that it's growing in and pick up that those um the the mycelium, the the um all the threads. Uh, the high feed that, that that grow out of it, you know, how how much would you be holding? How big would that be? It depends. Um, there are so many ways to be a fungus, and you can have fungi like a certain species of mold that have networks, mycelial networks that could fit on a speck of house dust. And you also have mycelial networks that can be some of the largest organisms in the world. In fact, the largest known organisms, um, or the largest ones that we know of, are um. Uh, fungal networks that sprawl over a, a square kilometers so there's a huge range but if we were to look at a bit of soil say we would go outside to um, an average garden or, or city park in um in england then you might find if that soil's healthy and fairly undisturbed and uncompacted you could find anywhere from 100 meters to 10 kilometers of uh, mycelial network in a teaspoon of the soil so it's really uh, quite boggling to think of how much these how, how much these fungal networks behave like a, a living scene, weaving much of life into relation. You know, these these are networks that hold the soil together. Without them, the soil would wash away. In fact, there wouldn't be soil in the first place because they play a big part in making soil. Uh, so they really are a, a, a kind of ecological connective tissue. Now, at the beginning, we were talking about, you know, what is a fungus? It's not a plant. It's not, um, it's not algae. It's not an animal. And yet it forms these really, really important relationships with them, doesn't it? And um, 
the you know what what we are discovering now is that plants many plants could not survive without that relationship without that relationship in the room so can you please just explain a little bit about how symbiosis works and how we're now discovering these these uh, useful relationships between entirely different kingdoms um that that form these these really important systems that hold life, this ecology. Yes, yeah, so so no organism lives in isolation. You know, so all organisms lived on the planet. They share. We share a biosphere, and um, and 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 many human cultures for for a very long time, for an unknowably long time, have um have conceived of the living world as a network, a meshwork of intimate reciprocal dependence of organisms, all um somehow inextricably bound in relation. Um, this is actually a very old idea, I think. And uh, but in the modern sciences, um, it seems like um, a slightly newer idea because um, it was in the you know the late nineteenth century or so um, that the idea of the beneficial sharing of bodily space really started getting um, some attention. Before this, um, when organisms lived in or on each other, um, it was sort of as a parasitism or disease within the modern sciences. So. Um, in the late 19th century, uh, this word symbiosis was brought into the biological sciences to describe the living together of unlike organisms um, in a way that was not necessarily bad for one of the partners involved. So what we think of today as symbiosis is, is, is living together. It's a vast spectrum of possibility. At one end, you could have this parasitism or disease where one partner's benefiting at the expense of other partners. On the other end, you could have mutualism where all the partners involved are benefiting on the whole. And then you could slide around anywhere on that spectrum. Um, so this leads us into quite a different picture of life um, because we see now that all organisms, because they're so bound up with the lives of others, um, it confuses some key categories like individuality. So when you think of yourself, we think of ourselves as individuals. And I mean, in many ways we are, we're treated as individuals in the societies that we live in. We have um, passports and um, file tax returns as individuals. And, and, and these are all um, very important ways that we can be selves this is definitely uh, it, the wrong month to bring up tax returns <laughs> just anxiety brewing now <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, and um so selves and selfhood is it, these are these are important um categories for humans but when you look at your body um on a closer scale it turns out that actually you're carrying around more microbial cells than your own cells and without these microbes you wouldn't be able to grow and you know um, reproduce and behave and all the things that we do um which are um, which are key parts of our identity as biological uh, uh, organisms. So we ourselves are ecologies. Um, so are all other organisms. It turns out plants contain fungi and bacteria. Um, fungi contain bacteria. They have their own microbiomes. Big bacteria contain small bacteria. Large viruses contain smaller viruses. Um, so we're all um, a nested, um, interwoven um, ecological system or systems within systems. Now, this has been um, discussed for some time. It's been, um, it remained close to the margins of polite biological society for much of the 20th century, um, but has now become um, much more discussed and about time too, because the ecological crises that we face uh, really require us to think in um, 
a deeper way about what it means to live together uh, on this planet. So fungi are really ingenious and remarkable symbiotes. They've been partners in some of the most world-changing and blockbuster symbiotic relationships over the course of the history of life. And one of these, as you mentioned, is with plants, uh, one of these types of relationship. So when we think of a plant, um, we often don't remember to think about all of the fungal partners that plants need to survive. And some of these partners live in and around plant roots. Um, they grow in and um, between plant cells uh, and they extend outwards into the soil in their forming these mycelial networks. Uh, and they have a trading relationship with plants. So plants supply the fungus with um, energy, with energy containing compounds like sugars and fats. Uh, and the fungus supplies plants with nutrients like nitrogen or phosphorus that it can scavenge from the soil more readily than the plant can. Because fungal networks are, are metabolically ingenious. They're um, chemical wizards and they have the ability to um, forage and scavenge in a way that plant roots um, are not so, they're not so capable of, uh, uh, when it comes to this. Um, so, I mean, is that to do with the kinds of enzymes that they are able to produce? Yeah, it's to do with the kinds of enzymes they can produce and um, and how responsive they can be to their changing environment. So the fungal networks can grow more quickly. They can they're much finer. They can um, dart into sites of decay, into um, charged micro cavities in the soil. And they're more nimble. And um, so for plants, this extends the, the amount of soil they can touch uh, by many times, um, by over a hundred times. And um, and this is obviously beneficial. Because they're essentially using the fungal network as a much larger surface area to interact with the, the chemicals um, that they that the plant needs from the from the soil. Exactly. It's a yeah. kind of prosthetic root system for the plant. And um like and now that. when we look at when we look at plants now are forming these these relationships, we call them mycorrhizal relationships. Um myco from fungus, rhiza from root. Um, but actually, these relationships are as old as plant life on land. And about 500 million years ago, the ancestors of plants, which did not have roots or leaves or anything that written, you know, modern plants have, because they floated around in a kind of nutrient broth in lakes and rivers. And they started to wash up onto the soggy shores of these lakes and rivers. And they were faced with a new set of challenges. They had to scavenge in the, in the soil. They didn't have roots to do so. They didn't have um, stems to kick them up above the ground and um, be able to grow towards the light. There were all sorts of challenges they had to overcome. And, but striking up a relationship with fungi uh, right at this early stage, um, we now know, um, was a key part in allowing them to establish themselves uh, on land. And so these these early plants, these ancestors of plants, had um, fungal networks, um, symbiotic fungal networks, long before they had their own roots. Tens of millions of years went by before plants evolved their own roots. So these fungal associations with plants are actually a more fundamental part of planthood than many of the things that we think of as really planty traits like leaves and fruit and flowers. Um, so they lie at the root of all recognizable life. Literally. Yeah. And it and you know, but the, but they weren't incorporated into the cell in the same way that mitochondria say became part of the eukaryote cell, or um they, they were still kind of distinctive, but together in the way that I don't know, I guess uh, coral reef um, uses its symbiotic or, or, or the way lichen behave. Why do you yeah. think that happened? Why do you think they they remained sort of distinctive? Well, I think there's um, I think there's a lot about the way that fungi behave that the plant needs 
the plant the plant can't do that with its body it can't it can't make a mycelial network that can fuse and branch in, in that quite in that same way um, and so when you see these endosymbiotic moments in the history of life as you say when when one partner engulfs another partner uh, and that partner goes on to live perpetually inside um, its um, engulfer um, that's an, usually a, quite an engulfable organism like a bacterium uh, and, and that bacterium can do its job within the confines of the larger cell but a fungal network really can't do its job within the confines of a plant it needs to be outside um, in contact with the soil responding remodeling itself um, to changes in the environment so uh, i think it really has to be for, for it all to work the fungus has to be part you know, doing the fungal thing um, and the plant has to be doing the plant thing which is what makes it such a remarkable relationship you know because they they meet in this place and, and the plant is a kind of dealing with the light the above ground um pole the fungus is dealing with the ground with the below ground um pole and and, and between them it's a kind of polarity uh, with the with the above ground and the below ground Yes, it's, I mean, it's completely incredible. It's basically inhabiting this very, very diverse um, type of ecological niche from the from the uh, canopy all the way down to the dark, damp, um, pressurized conditions of the soil. I think it's really interesting. And, you know, this, this symbiosis that we're discovering, uh, this interconnectedness of different ecosystems, I mean, it, it challenges, I guess it challenges our own idea of where the limits of self of where we end especially if we start thinking about the biosphere and, and thinking about how we depend and life depends on on things breaking down on, on the decay of stuff as well as the um the complexity and the building up of stuff and fungi plays such an important role um in that process um i wonder if you can talk a little bit about about the importance of decay, the speed at which it goes, and 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 the, you know, the diversity of types of fungi that that do that process, and whether we're talking about lignin or, or cellulose or, or these these kind of hard to break down long chains. It's such an important part of um, what fungi do, and it comes back a bit to, to this to the properties of mycelial networks. So, fungi produce these networks because unlike animals and we tend to go around in the world and find food and put it inside our bodies fungi put their bodies inside their food and so these these networks are a way that they're able to do that you know they can burrow tunnel inside whatever they happen to be eating it might be a lump of wood it might be um the surface of um a rock it might be there's a fungus that lives in the um a kerosene eating fungus that lives in the fuel tank of aircrafts and causes all sorts of problems um there are so many there's so many different things that fungi eat but whatever they eat they put themselves inside their food and um and this gives them a great power to digest their surroundings and that digestion of their surroundings has uh, enormously important roles in, in the biosphere as you say um and so we call it decomposition you know decay decomposition um and um and when we say, you know, when things decompose, what we really mean, it, we make it sound like um, they decompose themselves. But most things are decomposed by other organisms. And, and it's an active process. You know, um, decomposition requires decomposers and decomposers require enzymes and acids and other types of chemical um, and, and, and long evolutionary history to acquire these powerful chemical skills. And um, so 
the fungal decomposition of wood is a great example. You know, they, when plants had moved onto land with the help of their fungal partners, they needed to start growing upwards because there are other plants on land also growing upwards, competing for light. And um, and to make these new kinds of structure that would give them structural support, that would allow them to, to explore vertically, um, they had to invent structural materials. And cellulose is one of these materials, but there's another material that they devised, which uh, was called lignin. And lignin is a, a brilliant biochemical invention. It's very irregular structure. It's difficult to break down. Very few organisms to this day can break down lignin, uh, apart from a group of fungi, a group of fungi called the white rock fungi, are, are absolute um, total um, masters of this art. And they um, they evolved this ability to break it down by, by evolving a certain kind of enzyme which can disrupt the structure of lignin. And when they did so, they forever changed the way that carbon journeyed through its earthly cycles. Um, because before lignin could be broken down, forests would pile up and not rot. And, and I mean, imagine today, imagine if the if these if forests and the bodies of animals and plants didn't rot, you know, you, you would have, um, you'd be buried kilometers deep. And I mean, it's it's incredible to, to imagine that, to imagine a lack of decomposition. It's just, um, we don't, we don't realize we don't notice it and it's it's so surprising um the difference between the tropics where things rot so quickly and um cold climates where you can see perfectly preserved things from you know everything from mammoths and of course we rely right now on um on things that haven't decomposed uh, which are our fossil fuels um so so what happened yeah well, so 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 the forest that, that piled up and didn't rot became coal and so um and and so the, the forests that couldn't rot, you know, they they they, they fell into anoxic swamps where fungi weren't able to follow, uh, and um, or, or it might well, no one can quite agree exactly what happened. It might have been that fungi had not yet upgraded their apparatus of decay, or it might have been that the forests were rotting and falling into um, difficult like, anoxic swamps where the fungi couldn't reach. Um, but either way, fungi did not rot these forests, and um, and the result is that the forests transformed slowly over time and, and became coal. Um, and we then thermally decompose. Um, it's a technical term. So thermal decomposition of coal, um, we only able to do that because fungi weren't able to enzymatically decompose it uh, at the time. So our histories, our atmosphere, the composition of the atmosphere, the way that we live um, is completely bound up with the action of fungal metabolisms and um, the fungal metabolisms of, of the long past and of the present. Um, so it's, I think such an important thing to think about. And I really think about decomposition as a superpower. You know, it's it's just the most astonishing thing when you think about it, that you can transform matter from one form into another. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, I think we could all think about it a bit more. Um, I try to think about it as much as I can. I, I make compost in the garden and I, um, and, and I you know, grow mushrooms on logs and watch the logs turn into to soil. And uh, I, found it, I found it really helpful. Yeah, I mean, but... But when we talk about the problem that we're in at the moment, which is, of course, um, the uh, climate change caused by uh, now releasing all of that um, undecomposed um, coal and other fossil fuels. Fungi have a really important role in the in the rise the myco what, what you were talking about earlier about uh, helping plants to sequester a lot of the carbon in the soils. Um, and can and that that can play a role in um, in uh, in drawing down carbon, but at the same time, of course, they help emit carbon during the decomposition process. So, you know, well, 
is there a is there a balance? Is there a net gain or or loss? What what do we do with that? There's a balance, yeah. So um fungal decomposition of wood does emit carbon um like any thermal any enzymatic decomposition does but it also creates the conditions for new life it also creates soils and um, without soils we wouldn't have any of the things that we need so so decomposition is a vital process um and uh, even though it's you know, that we've held whole pieces of history where, where lots of life has not decomposed giving us coal and oil and so forth but um but yeah very importantly as you say they they you know, in supporting plant life um, they are enabling a vast amount of carbon to be drawn down from the atmosphere. And by growing in and around plant roots, being receiving um, carbon from plants in return for the nutrients they provide in this deal, um, this ancient deal, um, they are positioned, they're stationed at the entry point of carbon into the soil. And the soil is a hugely important store of carbon. There's more carbon in the soil than there is in all of the plant mass um, and atmosphere combined so um actually i've just been part of a study where we estimate 13 billion tons of of carbon enter the soil through mycorrhizal fungal networks every year um, and it doesn't just enter the soil through these networks it's stabilized in the soil through these fungal um fungal networks and the behavior of these networks so it's it's a very very important way that um that the that carbon enters the soil that carbon stays in the soil for longer um and that plant life is is facilitated so on the whole um we, and are there you know, any are there any um particularly important relationships that are particularly good at storing carbon you know are grasslands better um at, at that relationship with the uh with the fungi in, in storing the carbon or is it uh tropical forests or um or arboreal what what what's the best um I, is there a difference yeah there's a difference there's, there's a lot of difference and um uh, and grasslands, especially old growth grasslands, are, are, are really very good uh, at storing carbon. Um, boreal forests are good as well. Um, and um, actually, we, I'm, I'm part of an organization called the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks, or SPUN. Um, and we are currently... Not spy networks, fungal networks, just to clarify. Fungal ne yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, or or, or um, that's what we say, at least. But yes. we, we are um we're trying to map the mycorrhizal communities of the planet and work out where are these hotspots of carbon storage and how does that map with the mycorrhizal communities and are there ways that we can um other ways that we can encourage mycorrhizal com communities to store more carbon um or take more carbon down into the soil. Uh, and do you part. have any any hints at what that might be yet, or are you just well? We, 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 I mean, we're in the middle of doing it. Like we know we, we've been, we've had teams in Kazakhstan looking at old old growth grasslands there. We're going to Mongolia in the spring to look at old growth grasslands there. And um, we have you know, a huge network of uh, of mycorrhizal researchers all around the world um, studying this as we speak. So it's really exciting, and, and um, but no firm answers for you at this moment. So are fungal found everywhere? I mean, are there marine fungal? Are there fungal uh, marine fungi? Are there fungi um, in Antarctica? Are they are they everywhere, or do they do they are they only terrestrial? Yeah, they're, they're, so so they're every certainly everywhere where you'd find plants or lichens. There are fungi. Um, there are fungi in the um, there fungi in the atmosphere. Uh, fungal spores that make up actually the largest source of living particulate matter in the air. Five hundred million tons. Um, no, 50 sorry 50 million tons are, of fungal spores are released into the atmosphere every year and there are so many of these fungal spores in the atmosphere they actually change the weather they they um, nucleate precipitation 
uh, and so can um, trigger formation of raindrops and um, and do these do these sporing events happen you know at particular times are they coordinated or or is it very random is it like you you know coral spawning for example you tend to get more so so mushroom season in the northern hemisphere you'd find in you know the the, um september through december um when, when it tends to be damper um, and then in the southern hemisphere, again, you'd find it in the southern hemisphere autumn. So uh, more mushrooms are produced in, in autumn times. Um, but in the tropics, there really isn't quite an autumn. There's a wet season. So then you'd find, so it, it depends where you are. But um, And so you'll get pulses of spores at different parts of the world at different times. Uh, but uh, but to answer your, answer your question, there, there are definitely fungi in the ocean. We don't very little about them. Um, they fungi that live on coral reefs and the bodies of marine animals. Um, most seaweeds form relationships with fungi without which they couldn't do what they do. You'd find fungi growing in sulfurous sediments in the ocean floor um, and, and also in um, freshwater environments as well. So that's a very important fungal habitat. Well, listen, this this book that you've written, well, Entangled Life and this, and this new book is... Um, it really, it really demonstrates your love for fungi and your your awe for them, um, and I, I think it's uh, I think it's something that you it's, it's it's infectious when you start reading them. You start this a uh, huge appreciation um, for them. But this latest book, I'm I'm not sure if it's coming up back to front. I'm not sure, but um, this is the illustrated edition, and it's absolutely incredible. It's so beautiful. It's got all these um, beautiful pictures, um, and hopefully we can see uh, see a few of them. But you know, we've been talking about them, but why is it important to to look at fungi, to actually see them, given that a lot of it is sort of hidden in soils underground? There's these enormous networks. Yeah, it's um, it's so important to look at them, partly because um, partly because their lives are so strange and their bodies are so strange and the things they do are so strange that actually words aren't enough to 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 communicate um, their their wild. Um, brilliant weirdness uh, and so I think images say a lot and, and can help draw us into their lives um, in um, in a particularly vivid way um, but but also I think it's important because so much of what we know about fungal life and I mean in this book I talk about you know, lots of fungal knowledge that's been acquired over years over decades over hundreds of years by researchers by the patient diligent um, brilliant creative um uh, efforts of, of researchers, whether what, you know, scientists or traditional knowledge holders or uh, uh, any number of um, uh, amateurs and citizen scientists who have spent time on the whole looking at fungi. Um, so we know what we know largely because of the way we look at fungi and, and the way that we've invented to look at fungi. And we might be looking at, here we're looking at a mushroom, um, and this you know, we can see with our unaided senses, with our naked eyes, but um, some um aspects of fungal life we have to invent new ways to, to look at them um like microscopes and different types of microscope and um and so on and so yeah let's see really... some other pictures from the from the book this yeah, so here's what's that here's, this is a root so you can see the top there's the same section of root um moving from top to bottom made increasingly transparent so well with the plant matter is in gray i should say the fungus is in red so what you're seeing is as the the root is gradually the plant material is gradually turned down to reveal the fungal um the fungal networks and organs living inside so it really the is entangled very much so yeah and um and so this is you know without this it's 
it's very difficult to know what's going on inside the the plant you know and, and this itself is a type of microscopy that allows you to do this wonderful um sort of power of being able to turn turn off one of the partners like turn down the plant to reveal the fungus these ways that we can make for us to see which underlie our understanding um Yes, because however you describe that in words, it, it is so much, um, you know, the, the picture really does paint a thousand words here. You can actually see in your eyes what has been artificially manipulated to make it more obvious. But you wouldn't um, you wouldn't get that sense of how the two are as one. Exactly. And um, and so it's I, I think it's. It's really, really, I think it's fun to look at fungal, no, f fungi doing their thing uh, with images. I think it's important to look at fungi doing those things with images. Oh, here's a wonderful image. This was by by um, a photographer called Jeremy Lintot, and it's a, a wax cap, a mushroom growing on the edge of a cricket pitch at dawn, um, shrouded with cobwebs and dew beads forming on those cobwebs. Um, it's, and I love, one of the things I do in this book, you know, with the illustrations is, is to play with scale, to move from the very small to the very large, um, like we just moved from a microscope image to, to a mushroom. And that playing with scale, I find like uh, such an important way to make the familiar unfamiliar, um, to draw us in um, with new eyes to what might be otherwise a, a familiar scene or, you know, a, a mushroom um, that we've seen before. Uh, and so I, I, I really, um, work with that uh, in in the way that in the rhythm of the the flow of the images in this book, and um, because I find that helpful, I find it generates a kind of healthy confusion, which which pulls me forward uh, into the inquiry. Well, it's also really important for this subject when we're talking about something systemic, going from the micro to the macro and zooming in and out to show these different relationships and the different size. You know, the the, the fact that we're talking about something cellular, which is basically an enormous network and has all these effects that are so much greater than um it's, it's just uh i think it's so fascinating what are we looking mm. at here uh, this one's Lena? um this one is a a lichen a cross-section through a lichen this is by so i'm not sure we explained exactly what what um lichen is because that's a relationship isn't it yeah, so lichens are symbiotic organisms. They, um, we, you might have seen lichens. They, they grow on gravestones, on roofs, on trees. They can, um, they can be kind of crusty, uh, or they can drape and layer and flake. And um, but lichens are um, not one organism. Of course, most organisms are not one organism, but lichens are particularly uh, not one um, because they come about when a fungus and an algae, uh, alga, or a bacteria, or some combination of fungi and algae and bacteria um, make a life together and create a body and develop abilities that none of them could have by themselves. So um, it's a bit like the elements of oxygen and hydrogen, which are reactive gases, they come together to create water. And you wouldn't really expect um, water from the combination of these two elements, but, but there you have it. Uh, and with lichens, it's a bit like that. These organisms come together and create something entirely unexpected. So what we're seeing here is um, the the algal partner, which are photosynthesizing. So the algae photosynthesize, they produce sugars and, and lipids that the fungus lives on. And the fungal tissue here, you can see it is, is forming up most of the body of what you're seeing with these filaments um, in clasping the algae. Um, and it's so intimate, you know, this is very, very intimate sharing of bodily space. It's intimate um, pooling of abilities uh, coming together in a way where all the partners involved can um, extend their reach um, to do things they couldn't do by themselves. So 
Um, this one's just such a wonderful image. Toby did this uh, such a good job of uh, of, of you know, splitting the the lichen and and retaining the structure and and giving you this look right into the um, the body of the lichen and to to look at this clasping um, and to understand how this um, metabolic intertwining happens. And it's important to understand how it happens because lichens are um, they're real world makers. They eat rock. They're, they're, they 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 found ecosystems when. Um, glaciers retreat the first things to grow there are lichens and they eat the rock and start to create young soils in which other organisms can start to take root and so how they do that how they come together to do these things to um, enact these appetites um, is a really important question and and here you can see um, that coming together you can see that being together and staying together it's, a, it's an incredible image and Oh, we have another one. We have another one here. This is this is very pretty. This is um this is coloured, right? But it's microscopic. What are we looking at here? They look like um it looks like a, a sort of a, a woven um a, a close up of a woven jumper or scarf or something with um with filament threads. Yeah, so you're looking at a mold here. You're looking at the spore producing structures of a mold. Uh, so is this something that if you saw it on the macro with your naked eye, you'd be repulsed by? Does it grow on food? Is it is it yeah. kind of disgusting? But it's yeah. very beautiful at this scale. Yeah, exactly. You you wouldn't be particularly impressed if you just encountered it in your daily life. Um, you've probably you've encountered it a lot without even noticing it. You know, it's just probably growing under something you've walked past or, um, uh, but it's when you look at it like this. Uh, it becomes a kind of jungle, a, a kind of uh, a forest in which you can get lost and um, a landscape of its own and, and, and a very alien one at that. And so um, it's by a wonderful Dutch um, microscopist and scientist called um, Jan Dixterhus. And he um, he spends a lot of time in these worlds, just sort of strolling around in them as if he was as if he changed his own size. And you know, he gets lost in these worlds and, and really thinks of them as landscapes. And I just I love this. I love I love like what a party it looks like um and um and how utterly bewildering these you know, these anatomies and uh, are and if only could see if only could see what they were actually doing you know it's, it's it would amaze us even more um maybe there's a maybe there's an alien giant looking down on earth and looking at these funny little mammal things wandering around with bacteria in their guts and fungi on their skin and how they're all sort of meddling around in these this infrastructure and they're basically getting this this shot of our world that we <laughs> mm -hmm. um so so you know we've we've sort of looked at how how the human world interacts or is 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 uh, depends and relies on on uh, the role that fungi play in in sequestering carbon in creating soils that are fertile um and that um sustain the foods that we eat the crops the woods that we need and and the environments that we rely on but we've also had this very long history of deliberately using fungi to uh, ferment um, ferment all sorts of foods, to make alcohol, to create breads for baking, even our medicines, and and also for the psychedelic properties they have. Can you can you talk a little bit about um, about the human relationship, which must go back um, millennia? that people have had with this whole kingdom of of microorganisms yes it's I mean, it, it's so much a part of our lives that it's easy to forget about so we think about fungal um 
allies in the production of alcohol. You know, yeast are fungi, and yeast convert sugar into alcohol, and alcohol has been woven into human life for a very, very long time. Um, today, we think about it as a drink and as an intoxicant. But um, for much of human history, it's been more than that. It's been a way to have um, a safe liquid to drink. It's been a way to preserve herbs um, as a, a medium for herbal remedies and so vital to much of um, human medicine. Um, so so why does it, why do we tolerate, our body cells tolerate, so, tolerate it so well, but a lot of the dangerous bacteria, bacteria that are dangerous to our own health, are killed by alcohol? What was that? Um, how do, what was that? perhaps genetic change that led to our better tolerance of of um alcohol yes it's um so we have a um there's a mutation a single mutation which um which occurred in the common ancestor that we share with chimps and bonobos and um and orangutans and this allowed us to to metabolize alcohol um and to use it as a source of energy um, and it's called alcohol dehydrogenase. Uh, and so it's just one mutation. It's, it's, it's a pretty small change in our genome, but it opens up a lot, you know, a lot of possibilities because suddenly we can, um, before this, to, to illustrate what kind of change is actually, what it would actually mean for us as, a, as say, an alcohol drinker. Um, if you imagine the effect you have as a hangover, imagine that that's what happened right away when you drink alcohol. You know, you're immediately poisoned. You have symptoms of poisoning. You feel terrible. Um, your body's really working over time to 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 um, to get you back to to a sort of balanced middle ground. So, the alcohol dehydrogenase allows us to break down alcohol, use it as a source of energy, and opens up this whole dietary niche uh, of overripe uh, fruit. Um, so, there's been a lot of speculation about why this was. You know, what was what was what was important about this? And some people think, in the so-called drunken monkey hypothesis, uh, the wonderfully named drunken monkey hypothesis, that this ability to break down alcohol allowed us to move into um uh the sort of understory environments to come out of trees and onto the ground and, and and start living much more of this overripe fruit um which has already turned itself into alcohol you know rather the yeast on the fruit have turned it into alcohol uh, alcohol i mean i've seen this drunken monkey thing happening in south london on saturday night so it's very much with us oh yeah absolutely it's, it's very much with us and um and in non-human monkeys as well you know you can um, you can find them eating overripe fruit. And uh, I had some colleagues in, in Panama at a research station who would, were actually studying this and they'd go around following the monkeys uh, and having to collect the, the monkey's urine with a funnel into jars to, to measure how how much alcohol <laughs> is actually in their bloodstream. It was a, it was a how, difficult How did they? Oh, my God. Well, talking about Panama brings me um, to perhaps my favourite sloth, which is the... Um, the pygmy three-toed sloth, which lives on a, a little island um, of Panama, and it specializes in this red mangrove leaf. And this red mangrove leaf has um, a, a particular type of fungus on it, which has psychedelic and, and also Valium effects. And so these, these, these sloths are constantly stoned essentially i mean i'm not sure how you tell a stoned sloth from a not stoned sloth because it's kind of similar but they are making use of something that we also make use of um that psychedelic effect that certain uh, fungi have um on our on our neurology and there, you know, this was scientists were obviously quite um, came up against this whole sort of political 
horrified uh, reaction um, in the late 60s and 70s. But there has been um, a something of a, a weakening of that. And people are really looking at um, psilocybin and, and other um, uh, things. And, and you talk a little bit about this in your book. And I'm wondering, it's being explored for everything from uh, depressions for tr uh, treatment for depression to kind of just that perspective altering state of mind that can um, perhaps allow more creative thoughts to pass. Tell me your your thoughts about this, Merlin. I'd be really interested to hear them. Well, it's a big, um, big field. But um, I think one of the key points is that that it's easy to, to think of this recent flurry of interest in psychedelics um, as a story of discovery. But really, um, the, all the psychedelics that are being discussed and studied using the tools of modern science, which are allowing us a new vantage on the way that they affect our bodies. Uh, all of these um, psychedelics have been used by traditional societies for a knowably long time um, as medicines, as ways to heal, as ways to solve problems. Um, they're useful, useful medicinal um, uh, partners, plant and fungal partners. Uh, and so um, I mean, I think we can forget about that, that there's a very long history of, of human use and, and dependence and uh, dependence in a good way, like dependence in a kind of our cultures are illuminated and expanded and um, and, and somehow blessed by their relationship with these um, with these plants and fungi. So and, and the context is really important, isn't it? Because in, in some in, in a lot of indigenous practices, it is something that is done communally and it sort of helps bring people together with that, you know, in that sense of awe. And um, can you talk a bit about about the social bonding um, and sort of cooperative aspect of some of this? Yeah, well, I think that's a, a big part in lots of what we might think of as um, a spiritual practices. You know, we we we're singing together or um, going on pilgrimages together, praying together, um, doing um, other kinds of uh, like dancing together. Um, so anything that helps us to access a sense of awe, a feeling of oneness with the world, uh, a feeling like um, there is a um, a ground of being that is somehow conscious that can know us um, the divine uh, any of these things that we do together these congregational practices i think can weave us into um, community into culture uh, and into a deeper relationship with what it means to be alive and psychedelics i think form part of that you can think of them as um, one one way to that kind of um to that mystical experience that we can achieve this kind of mystical experience through lots of different um, different ways but um and and so psychedelics have often been done in groups and but there's also ways that people have taken them in more solitary um in more solitary settings as well um, i so mean have today, you found it personally personally helpful or useful what has your been your um experience i found psychedelics to be very helpful um in um in reminding me that my mind's a really vast place so much vaster than i normally remember you know it feels in day-to-day -day life when i'm judging around on my computer doing emails and so forth that um my, my mind can feel quite um well it feels like what it feels like but um that is revealed to be a, a quite a small part of what my mind can be uh, on psychedelics and i think one can have this feeling of like, like the vastness of your mind the vastness of possible feelings the way your imagination can stretch into uh, into the most surprising um, shapes and, and places and um, relationships through all sorts of things through listening to music through looking at astonishing art through eating amazing food um, but and psychedelics are one of these ways that I found that that helps me to to um, throw myself into the into the furthest reaches of, of, of my mind and and, and to 
um, be thrilled by that, be thrilled that it is possible to know and experience and that I get to know and experience. Well, I, I, I'd love to talk a little bit more about um, about the human relationship that that we might have with um, with fungi because they offer us all sorts of potential solutions for sustainability, for human health, new drugs, um, all sorts of things. But I want to have a quick look um, at some of the questions that um, you've sent in. Um, uh yeah so somebody's asked about um um about uh yeah someone said is the fung is the fungus when entangled within a plant root in the process of decomposition or are they stably living together so um mm. they're stably could... living together um yeah so, so it's so when the fungus is so the fungus is is busy you know acquiring nutrients in the soil outside the plant root and that might look like parachuting into um sites of decomposition and, and acquiring nutrients that are floating around uh, it might look like um freeing nutrients that are tightly locked onto soil particles um so there they're involved in more of a decomposing kind of activity and once it's inside the fungal network it comes back to the the, the plant root um well at least some of it does uh, and there it's traded with the plant um and the, but those the structures the trade structures the the exchange structures that it makes with the plant uh, they come and they go they they form and they are reformed but they are on the whole um you know they're a stable place a stable site of exchange rather than a um a place where decomposition is happening and I think that's quite important when we think about um, some of our agricultural practices, which can um, destabilize the the soil systems and the and the root systems um, to the disadvantage of that that huge sort of systemic network that's um, built up. Um, I, what where are we with um, with our sort of sustainable relationship with? fungi i mean are they are any fungi endangered because of us are we um are they at risk what, what is the what is the fungal biodiversity like are, are any of our practices actively harming these uh these types of fungi yes in a word um so again big big group of organisms lots of ways to be a fungus and um and lots of the things that we do disrupt fungal life in, in a really um, problematic way. And so, for example, when we cut down, when we clear cut a forest, all of the fungi that depend on plants to live, um, whether in their roots or around their roots or in their, their leaves or their shoots, those fungi are going to have their habitat destroyed as well as the plants. Um, that can create problems if we're hoping for that forest to regenerate. That can create problems if we're um, depending on those fungal partners to do things like um, funnel carbon into the soil and keep it there. Um, it can do all sorts of um, have all sorts of un unintended um, and really negative effects or just hold the soil together um, when we plow um, in, in agricultural situations in industrial agricultural situations frequent deep plowing application of fungicides of course is a problem but fertilizers as well inorganic fertilizers disrupts the balance of exchange between plants and their fungal partners um, and that can create a lot of problems as well so um, then urbanization um, soil erosion you know that when when soil erodes and this is a huge problem soil degrades and erodes um then this vast habitat for you know, 25 percent of all species on the planet live in the soil 
Uh, and when we disrupt those habitats, destroy those habitats, it destroys you know, the place for other for the organisms to live in those places. And and the things that they do in those places really matter. You know that this is and, and, and I keep coming back to this, but the the roles they play in the biogeochemical cycling and the roles they play in um, regenerating ecosystems, the regenerative capacity of the biosphere, you know, is under underwritten by organisms that live in, in the soil. And, when we disrupt these yeah we, we talk about circular economy and circular but this is something that is going on <laughs> in nature all the time by fungi um we could learn quite a lot from from this circular economy um that the fungi are engaged in for sure so um so basically yes we, we are we're disrupting these ancient life support systems and, and, and it's a huge problem um and, and there's a lot we can do to to change this and actually i'm working with a number of organizations and initiatives who are focusing on different aspects of this of how to bring fungi into our um into our conservation mindsets our restoration um settings and 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 to help to um to factor them in rather than just ignore them and if we have our own kind of compost bins, as many of us do, um, are there particular types of food that we should be feeding our fungi with, or or does it does it not matter? I mean, it depends on the type of composting you're doing. But on the whole, you know, your compost your compost bin will you're feeding it what you feed yourself, and that feels like quite good manners. Um, depending on what you feed yourself, of course, you don't want to. Um, but anything that 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 degrades, that biodegrades, um, will compost in principle. Um, so, but we're also we're also threatened not just by from the uh, systems that we rely on, but we're also threatened by um, potential uh, fungal pandemics. You know, we've just come out of a viral pandemic, and there's been plenty of bacterial ones, but we're perhaps not as aware of the of the fungal pandemics. What's what what's the risk there, and and how prepared are we? Yeah, really important question, uh, um, and so much of much of the um awareness of fungi that we do have uh, is is in terms of fungal diseases and fungal diseases are a big problem fungal diseases of humans uh, are a big problem and a growing problem fungal superbugs are on the rise partly because of our irresponsible use of fungicides creating new fungal superbugs um but fungal diseases of plants that we depend on also a massive problem uh, and um so uh but the, the 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 problem causing the disease causing fungi are, are they, they they punch above their weight in terms of the uh, amount of attention they get from us because they're a very small aspect of a very small proportion of the fungal kingdom in general but no, they can't create big problems for us um the biggest problem i think is that we are not giving these fungal diseases very much attention fungi are neglected you no know, fungi are kingdom of life they have not had a kingdom's worth of attention wherever you look in whatever discipline so in medical um the bi the biomedical world Fungi, fungi are neglected also, um, which means that not a single vaccine has been produced of, against a fungal disease. Um, it means that the research budgets for um, so, um, cures, medicines for fungal diseases is um, dwarfed by that spent on um, just on COVID, you know, just on one viral disease, uh, vastly more is spent than on a whole the diseases caused by a whole kingdom of life. So there's there's, there's problematic. Well, it's quite a deadly disease, though. I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't just spend that on COVID, but just to put it into perspective, um, you think about then all of the viral diseases, all of the bacterial diseases, um, and then these fungal diseases, which are um, which are uh, uh, potentially really, really problematic. So, yes. Um, and where do the cures and where do the vaccines? I mean, will they come from other fungi like, you know, penicillin, um, you know, treats 
uh, bacterial infection will fungal will fungi treat other fungi infections is, it's is very that possible where... it's very possible that we'll find antibiotics in fungi that will treat fungal diseases um and um i don't know that's they're, they're such they're, they say that these chemical wizards and, and a lot of the problems that that we face they face analogous problems and we can rehouse some of their chemical inventions within our bodies like penicillin to help us solve problems i mean how much do we know about them how many of fungal genomes have been sequenced to date maybe about 200 um right and um but there are about three million three maybe when we have estimates about three four million species of fungi we think um uh, over um 90 percent of which have not been described um, name and what what are their genomes most i'm interested in the evolution of them what, what are they most similar to bacteria or what where where does where what is their um lineage they're actually more closely related to animals than to plants or bacteria right um, so and that can be quite surprising yeah but, um, so yeah we share a common ancestor with fungi that and are people thinking are people thinking about um genetically modifying fungi to perhaps give them photosynthetic abilities or um or to produce um you know medicines that we might need or foods yeah this happening genetic modification of yeast is happening all the time and um in fact in engineered strains of yeast are used as kind of little biochemical factories um 15 of all vaccines are produced in uh, modified strains of yeast um so this is going on um with yeast in, in in a very mainstream way other types of fungi can be harder to genetically modify they have quite unstable genomes and and they're, and they're weird genomically which makes it harder to wrangle um, somebody has asked uh, about the symbiotic relationship with leaf cutters, um, leaf cutter ants, um, and um, if there have been any studies into this, and if there are going to be any breakthroughs. Been lots of studies. Um, it's such a fascinating relationship, and uh, we're actually well, the relationship relationships between different kinds of leaf cutter ants and different kinds of fungi, and each kind of each lineage has their its own fungal. Um, partner which they cultivate in huge mounds and um, they form societies of millions and millions of individual insects um, and they feed their fungal it's a kind of agriculture they feed the fungus the fungus living in their mounds on fragments of leaf fungus eats the leaf uh, and the ants can live off the um the sort of slurry that that remains and um but it's it's a fascinating just from this thing we were talking about about um medication that, so leafcutter ants grow a monoculture. They grow this fungus on which their entire society depends. And that monoculture, like all monocultures, is vulnerable. Um, and there's a fearsome um, fungal parasite that could come in and take over the fungal monoculture. Uh, and so these ants have evolved glands on their bodies. And in those glands, they house bacteria and the bacteria that live in their glands. So these are like rooms on their body. Like it's a very, very old... Um, relationship and these bacteria produce an antibiotic that allow the ants to protect their fungus from the fearsome um uh, pathogenic fungus uh, and this this is a no it goes back tens of millions of years this, this relationship so long before humans um started doing agriculture what a few thousand years ago twelve thousand years ago maybe um this is you no know, 40 40 50 million years ago um, but yeah, there's plenty of work on it, I, I, and it's um, it's a it's a fascinating subject, and um, new wonderful things being discovered.
every month. Oh, it, it is fascinating. I, I really, I, I share your excitement. And of course, um, you know, they're not just goodies, uh, fungi. I'm just thinking of the some of the infections that have decimated frog populations um, in uh, Central America. Um, you know, have we have, are we able to control fungal outbreaks um, on our agriculture on on um, animals that we like? Are we are we developing? Is there an active sort of process of of developing antifungals like like the ants so handily have? Well, this is again one of the problems. We've got no fungal vaccines, no vaccines against fungal diseases, uh, and there's only four classes of antifungal compounds, and very few are in development. So. Um, we are really not making lives easy for ourselves. Not that antifungals are always the way to go. You know, a lot of the time these diseases occur because things have got out of balance and the things that have got out of balance are often because of ways that humans have intervened in the system. So um, mm -hmm. just showering them with another antifungal is not necessarily the way forward. Usually these things can indicate that there are systemic issues that need to be addressed that will, um, that, that, and that maybe that's where we should be looking. Yeah, in terms of the we we push something um, out of the way. Well, we, you know, it, it, we're coming up to the time, and I, I we didn't get a chance to talk about any of the zombie cordyceps, um, which are all very exciting. Or one of my favourite things was finding out from your book about um, the explosive force of stinkhorn mushrooms, um, which which is quite quite fascinating. Can you quick, very very briefly tell us um, how strong a stinkhorn mushroom is? Well, it can crunch through asphalt. Um, there was a problem. The French Air Force had a problem. There's a hilarious story about their, you know, their runway being disrupted by mushrooms just punching up through the asphalt, so crunching through um, uh, and making it difficult for planes to take off and land. Incredible. The, the, yeah, the rise of the mushrooms. Well, um, I recommend that everybody... Uh, reads this beautiful book and it, it's really beautiful like visually beautiful as well as beautifully written um and you can also see a film um that that merlin's um been heavily involved in an imax film which Björk is narrating and um it will be at uh the imax uh film theater imax uh, cinema in late january um and i London, think the, the one in waterloo BFI. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I forget no. there are other places apart from that one. I'm, <laughs> of course, there are. Um, um, yeah, the the IMAX and and in, in the uh, Waterloo roundabout, um, and um, and and yeah. So do get it. Do read the book. And and the and his original book, of course, is definitely definitely worth reading. Merlin, it's been such an incredible pleasure. Um, wonderful. We should do mushrooms one day. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna hand back to Jack. Oh, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Could have listened to you for hours. And thank you to everyone watching at home for all of your questions. Remember that you can order a copy of the new illustrated edition of Entangled Life from Newham Bookshop and catch Merlin's new film at the IMAX in London in January. Check out the chat for more information on that. This is our last event of the season, but please do join us again in the new year. We'll be kicking off in January with a panel on the somewhat related theme of health and nature, which is the third event in our new series with Kew Gardens and Rathbones. You can find more information about that at www.5by15.com. Merlin, Gaia, thank you so much. Good night. Pleasure. Good night. Good night.